Call from mom. Answer it. Call silenced. Instacart knows nothing gets between you and the game. That's why they make ordering from your couch easy. Stock up today and get all your groceries for the week delivered in as fast as 30 minutes without missing a minute of the game. You have 47 new voicemails. Download the app to get free delivery on your first three orders while supplies last. Minimum $10 per order. Additional terms apply. Good evening and welcome to Amplify, a telephone talk show that looks at life from a religious perspective. I'm Father Ron Langwin, hoping that you have felt the warmth of God's love in your life this day, but especially the joy you experience when you share God love, God's love with others. I had a little bit of that this weekend with my sister, certainly shared God's love with me. I was on vacation this past week, so uh, this has started me right back into work, and what a way, what a wonderful way to do it with a wonderful guest. But it, first of all, I'd like to begin a program as we do each week with a story that is based on faith. Uh, and formed with imagination. A young man asked Jesus, Master, how can one deal with the loss of possessions that are precious to you? Jesus was silent for a while and then answered, Precious, it is a word. What does it mean? The young man looked down at the earth and then up to the sky and said, I don't want to discuss this matter in front of so many people. Jesus nodded and said, Speak, my son, for your heart is filled with both tears and anger. That is true, the young man replied, but may I speak with you privately? When the crowd had dispersed, the young man approached Jesus and said, I could not speak of my loss in front of so many people. Jesus responded, That is understandable. The young man continued, I lost both my wife and my child in a fire. Both were gifts to me from God. I wandered through life and searched for the meaning of what had happened. I found work on a caravan. When the merchandise was sold, I was paid handsomely. I was going to return home and build a new life when I was robbed, beaten, and left to die. There was sadness and anger in his voice. Jesus urged him to continue. Go on, he said. The young man said, A rich man came by and saw me lying by the road. He looked down at me and threw me a coin, but he chose not to help me. I cried. I felt so alone. When he awoke, a beggar was holding me in his arms like a child. He was a leper, and I became frightened. He told me not to be afraid, that he would care for me, and he did. When I was well, I thanked him. But, Master, there was disgust and fear in me. I could tell in his eyes that he knew this, but he never said anything hateful to me. Now I have to live with this. I've never been able to find him, even though I've searched for him. I believe I have lost a true friend. How can I deal with this, Master? Like the young man had done, Jesus looked down at the earth, up at the sky, and then at a tree filled with fruit. He said to the young man, 
Go in peace and love. Like this tree, you bear much fruit that allows you to care for and share with others. A story of faith and imagination. Our guest this evening writes in the introduction to his book titled Finding Comfort During Hard Times, subtitled A Guide to Healing After Disease, Violence, and Other Community Trauma. And he writes in the introduction, Disasters do not discriminate between culture, race, class, or geography. This is not an issue affecting small pockets of unlucky people. The whole country has been touched by tragedy, Hurricane Sandy, the Boston Marathon bombing, the shootings at the churches and synagogues in North Carolina, Texas, and Pennsylvania, Sandy Hook Elementary School, Columbine, the Aurora Movie Theater. Since the beginning of this project, there has been the Paris and Las Vegas shootings, the hurricanes in Texas, Florida, and Puerto Rico, California wildflowers and mudslides, the Parkland school shooting, and the shooting in New Zealand. Through news and social media, it sometimes feels like we are exposed to one tragedy after another. The issue of how to respond to mass fatality disasters is unfortunately not going away. In every place touched by disaster, people are longing for hope and comfort, striving to find purpose and meaning. After Hurricane Katrina alone, there were 250,000 volunteers. People want to give and receive comfort from each other after these tragedies. But what exactly should they do? How should and could they respond? How do you talk to children about mass shootings or provide support to someone who has lost a loved one? How much can we adore? These are only a few of the questions that our guest this evening answers in uh, his book, Finding Comfort for Hard Times. And I'm speaking of Earl Johnson, who was one of the founders of the spiritual care function in the American Red Cross. He helped uh, develop the organization's psychological first aid curriculum and coping with deployment. He also worked on Light Our Way for the National Voluntary Organizations Active in Disaster. Earl Johnson, welcome to Amplify. Well, thank you. I'm, I'm uh, delighted and humbled to be with you this evening. Um, I, love, I love your book. Uh, it's very helpful, very practical from one perspective, and yet very personal and an expression of great wisdom in others that answers some of the questions just posed by these remarks that I spoke of from uh, your uh, introduction. Tell us a little bit about how you got swept up in a new career working as a spiritual care specialist for disaster situations. Well, my background was in hospital chaplaincy and hospice chaplaincy, and uh, I I, uh, uh, spent a lot of time in an AIDS ministry at Cabrini Medical Center in New York City, uh, one of the epicenters of the uh, AIDS epidemic, and uh, um, it just, you know, uh, uh, was very, very rewarding very, very difficult. Uh, I choose to accentuate the positive uh, first because 
I too have been given many gifts and uh, uh, working there um, at a Catholic medical center in New York City uh, during the AIDS pandemic, uh, I should not interchange the pandemic with the epidemic, but um, it, it really uh, was a very vital ministry and uh, each day um, uh, was very compelling to a new set of challenges. And then September 11th happened, and uh, I had just moved on September 9th from um, lower Manhattan to uh, Arlington, Virginia, and I was sitting in my backyard, and I heard the plane hit the Pentagon, and I didn't realize that that's what it was, um, because living next to a hospital emergency room in New York City, you're used to uh, explosions and loud sounds, and and uh, truck backfires, et cetera. And uh, uh, my sister was also at, at end-stage cancer, and it became increasingly more difficult for me to walk into a hospital room and see a middle-aged woman with end-stage cancer because I would always be thinking of my dear sister. And, and so uh, um, I had an opportunity to... Uh, go with a special team in Red Cross that um, was formed to respond to mass fatality disasters like plane crashes and to be there um, because the families uh, and loved ones and survivors uh, requested help um, because after these catastrophic incidents, there is always a, an outpouring of big-hearted, generous people, but also predators and entrepreneurs, and they wanted to be protected, and they wanted to be served. And uh, um, so I uh, took the training with Red Cross, and I found that all my hospice and hospital training transferred right over to the disaster arena, and uh, uh, the same focus, the same skill sets, and uh, um, so that's a little bit uh, uh, about how I changed from uh, hospital chaplaincy to uh, disaster chaplaincy. Yeah, on a personal note, my mother had hospice care before she died a number of years ago, and I, I will never forget how they cared for her. Uh, I still tell the stories uh, today as a sign of hope for people. Now, I, I have, uh, in my introduction, uh, expressed what I believe you have accomplished in this book. What is it that you hope to accomplish in writing it? Well, um, that's a great question, and um, I've had a, a chance now in retirement uh, from Red Cross to sort of use this time for reflection. And I'm out in the Shenandoahs, and I'm very privileged and very blessed. I have had this opportunity to reflect upon all this trauma, um, some that I've endured myself. Most of it has been endured by uh, people uh, in these mass fatality uh, disasters, whether it's been a plane crash or a hurricane. And and this emerging need for comfort, I thought, oh, my gosh, maybe I'm not the only one that in their reflections that we have this profound need for comfort 
so many people are in pain. So many people are in suffering. Just in normal everyday life, with everyday traumas, not to mention um, a catastrophic weather event or uh, shooting, and and so um, what I hope to accomplish is is to uh, have a, a a handy uh, guide that people can come to for suggestions. Um, if it's relevant, great, use it, uh, pass it on. If it's not, um, then, you know, I hope that some point of this book will resonate with all readers. Um, and, and I think it will, again, because we live in a time when uh, indeed, you refer to the weather. There, there, there are fires once again in California, and the shootings that have taken place in some of our major cities. Uh, and we could go on and on, just talking about the United States. Um, and and let me just give an example of um, at the end of each chapter, you have you offer ways uh, to help people for, for preparing a disaster. First one is a way to comfort. I'm not going to read each of the citations uh, fully, but take disaster training, even a basic course makes a difference. Take a deep breath and make a plan. Evaluate your basic needs and resources and build a disaster kit. Talk to family, friends, colleagues, children. Make sure they know what to do. Don't let the stress of getting things perfect prevent you from doing anything at all. Be flexible. Be confident. Designate a family member, friend to contact in emergency be patient, be kind, be authentic. And again, you write much more uh, than that, but just to give an, uh, an idea of what they can find at the end of each chapter. You believe that Noah's Ark was the first disaster emergency response vehicle. Tell me a little bit about that. Well, thank you for bringing that up. Um, you know, uh, uh, there's a real disaster culture, and and it, it, they seek to, um, you know, whether on the negative side, whether you have ambulance chasers or whether on the positive side, you know, specially trained um, emergency response uh, people. And, uh, and I hearkened back to the Old Testament and the flood as being sort of the first real weather emergency with the flood and the rain and uh, um, an emergency response vehicle is what we in Red Cross call our uh, our trucks, our canteens that we send out, whether it's a house fire or whether it's a, a tornado or shooting uh, to serve coffee and sandwiches, but also uh, to help assess the situation and, and uh, you know, get people out there helping uh, as quickly as they can. So uh, um, that was my icebreaker. <laughs> yes, I'm sure it was. Um, and... Uh, you point out that disasters are a major part of human and natural history and not just natural disasters. And today the scale and scope of disaster seems to have increased. It's it's sort of always been there, that, that fear, that anxiety. I graduated from uh, grade school in 1954. So I remember back in the 1950s when we had school drills, when we would have to go when they were afraid of war or bombing, and we would go to the basement of the school 
to uh, in front of a locker and we were told how we were to stand with our face towards the locker and our hands over our head. And, and so I, all the way back then, you, I remember those stories. And September 11th has had such an effect on disaster preparedness. And, and the book shows us that there have been a number of lessons that we can learn from that disaster from each of them. Um, and you and you believe that um, everyone needs to have a disaster plan. And, and about a decade ago, I was in a program with uh, Citizens Academy for the FBI, and I, I attended uh, like uh, one day a week, six weeks or seven weeks for a while. And we did, an, we did a tabletop exercise uh, to show how uh, we need to be prepared, how how people are prepared who have such a plan. Should the church be included in, in, in a disaster plan? Because it seems to be a soft target. Oh, my God, yes, of course. And uh, knowledge lessens anxiety. Knowing what to do, knowing who's going to do what, uh, does lessen the anxiety, and it makes us have the feeling that, you know, we don't have to do everything, um, and and that uh, uh, there are those that are uh, who are specially trained to help us, and and uh, in the church because it is a community, it is a soft target, and you know risk. Uh, assessment um, for years uh, uh, local congregations or synagogues or mosques now have had disaster preparedness drills and they've also had security officers assigned to them um, some after the the fact because you can't imagine something like that happening to you something happening here and and uh, uh, to prepare for this I say is caring. To prepare is to care. And if you truly love one another, which goes back to our gospel underpinning, then to love one another is to take care of one another, to prepare for whatever eventuality, uh, both good times and bad times, take preparation. And uh, churches certainly need a disaster plan. And it's not a self-fulfilling prophecy that if you have a plan, then you're going to make the disaster happen. And there's also, with a certain segment of the population, the belief that God is going to swoop down at the last minute and, and rescue everyone if the congregation is in danger. And I think that uh, theology is, is, is flawed. Um, but I respect those who believe that, that the Lord will protect us. Mm-hmm. But we have to do our part. You know, we have to put on our oxygen mask first before we put it on the child. And so congregations, we are uh, pillars of the community. Uh, even now during this um, COVID yeah. pandemic, this horrible, horrible pandemic, um, we we still are neighbors. And Earl, to be Earl, a good neighbor. Earl, let me. Yeah. We have to go to our first break. Hold your thought, and we'll be right back. Welcome back to uh, Amplify. Uh, our guest is Errol Johnson. The title of the book is "Finding Comfort During Hard Times." These are hard times. There are many disasters that we could point out, and through the book, um, he. 
He guides you, is the subtitle, to healing after disease and violence and, and other kinds of, of trauma. And when we broke off, when I had to break in, uh, Errol, you were talking about the present pandemic. Yes, yes. And uh, uh, it it is um, an extraordinary event. It's this is a really, really hard time, and I think that that needs to be emphasized uh, uh, to your listeners and, uh, to, to know that this is not normal and, and that we need um, to take extra care uh, with each other. And uh, uh, I look at how many people are unemployed, are underemployed. I look at the increase in violence, um, shootings in our uh, um, urban settings. Um, you know, people don't have jobs. There's food scarcity, um, and on top of that, there is a um, acute illness um, that uh, there isn't a vaccine for. So it's it's a very, very hard time, and uh, uh, it, it calls us to uh, 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 be good neighbors and also follow the CDC guidelines. Um, the book itself, you, know, you, uh, you prepare us for disaster where comfort begins, and then there are a myriad number of ways in which we can comfort people at various stages. Uh, the, the contents include the first day, the first week, uh, the first month, the first year and beyond, um, then natural disasters, managing comfort, everyday traumas, families and comfort, and the future of comfort. Uh, and when you're, when you're writing about the first day, uh, you indicate that when tragedy occurs, you remember where you were and what you were doing. I, I have such memories of Vietnam when I went to families to, to tell uh, uh, wives and, and mother and father of uh, someone killed in Vietnam. I can remember suicide in a hospital, many others. But you write about ideally everyone should be told about a tragedy in a controlled and private situation by a trained professional. But it doesn't always work that way because sometimes you witness it. Instant communication can be reassuring, but it can also be traumatizing. Uh, part of the spiritual care you write at this time is simply, and this is a the first day is simply helping people to breathe and focus on now, not tomorrow's worries, that anxiety can especially be intense when victims include children and caring for yourself is also important. What else should we be expecting the first day or amplify on any one of these points? Well, um, the root of... Uh Spirit is respire, which means to breathe in Latin. Um, and and spiritual care, uh, in other words, may be helping people breathe. Um, and, you know, wherever we are, when we hear about something bad, we catch our breath. And and it's, it's, it's useful to remind people, um, take a deep breath, okay? Um, now, what is it that we need to do, or uh, are you someone who is so close to the disaster that you need to be taken care of? And, 
you know, no one is untouched by by these traumatic events. Uh, we're all impacted by them, and uh, and trauma does accumulate. And um, chapter three is the first week, and you write about uh, what we can do to help those left behind. That the most moving part of a memorial service is a moment of silence, and underst- we should understand that the site where that happened may not be religious, but if it's where your loved one died, then we might believe it to be sacred. And one of the examples you give is a Pittsburgh airline crash in 1994 when 132 persons were killed, and that was uh, a relative of uh, one of the people that I I work with. Uh, Tell us a little bit about uh, the first week then, what's What's important? Why it can be important to stay in the bubble and not watch any outside news or coverage? Well, you're you're in shock, and and um, I, I really emphasize the self care piece because if you're working in this environment and taking care of extremely traumatized people who've just lost a loved one in just an unimaginable way. Um, you know, it, it, it takes a special skill set, and sometimes a trained mental health professional or doctor, um, because there may be uh, some need for medicine or something to help someone sleep or or or, uh, or calm down, and and there is no peace. And um, so that first week, uh, you're beginning to um, meet each day. Um, and you still uh, need to be respected. Your dignity needs to be maintained, and and you need to have people around you that you trust. Um, but sometimes, you know, being a first responder, as you mentioned it, sometimes the disaster comes to you. Like the Minneapolis Interstate Bridge collapse, those people, you know, who almost went off the bridge, became first responders um, to pulling people and children off of a school bus until fire and uh, EMS could arrive. And, and it, uh, you know, the sort of spontaneous, unaffiliated volunteer. And, and there's a role for everybody, but there's also a role to leave and knowing when to leave, knowing when to, to uh, uh, pass the baton uh, to another care provider. I like in your ways to comfort uh, the first week. And again, there, there are 10 of them. Um, a couple of them are that I that stood out to me. Say something. Send a card. You don't have to find the perfect words. Silence hurts more. Let loved ones know you are thinking about them. Be a listening ear. Um, connect with others. And uh, so there, there are a lot of ways at, at every stage in which we can provide comfort, aren't there? Absolutely. And, and you know, this is after the press leaves or after the family leaves, after the funeral, um, or some kind of ritual. Uh, now with COVID, we can't actually have funerals uh, yet. And and so it's, it's, you know, there's a time that you... Or, or call to just be with someone, and and you don't have to say a lot. And then as days go by, then there's a time of saying, you know, 
if you need to talk, I'm here. Um, any day, any time, um, I am here for you. And also make sure you know that that person is safe with you, uh, that you um, um, uh, not a, everyone has the opportunity to 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 uh, share um, uh, through some kind of, of ritual in the church, mm-hmm. um, but you know each person um, there's something called common sense, and and that doesn't you know that's not thrown out the window just because there's a disaster, but but being with people, saying something, making sure they know they're safe with you, because these people are in such extraordinary pain. They have been traumatized. They are suffering, and and they may need you to, to be there with them and, and take care of them. You point out in um, the first month now, after the first month of a disaster, that um, your identity often changes, that there is a new normal, and people are already beginning to talk about that now in terms of the pandemic. What is the new normal going uh, to be? And uh, in every disaster, you indicate that there are phases and um, that each phase is unique to every disaster. And you write about ways to comfort during the first month. But tell us a little bit about... um, um, what is hospitality? What do you mean by hospitality uh, fatigue in the concept of the second disaster? Well, um, after Hurricane Katrina, there were over 2 million, I believe, um, evacuees from uh, New Orleans and the Gulf Coast uh, that needed uh, services and uh, there were flights, continuous flights out of New Orleans and out of the Gulf Coast, and people uh, were called upon to be hosting families uh, all over the nation in all 50 states. And and there was a sort of honeymoon phase where people, you know, I'd received calls in Washington, D.C. It's like, you know, um, we have a, a, a summer camp that we've been able to open reopen, you know, and it was September and the weather was still um, um, not too cold. And, and people say, where, where are our evacuees? And then, you know, uh, people would be cheerful, people would greet, people would welcome, people would con- comfort, people would console. And then after a week or two weeks, when are they going to leave? Uh, this the hospitality was strained and and uh, you know people are saying okay we need to get on with our lives and and uh, you know uh, uh, this being a host it, it there were limits there were boundaries to the amount of hospitality uh, individuals or communities could offer and um Tell us a little bit about the symptoms of uh, what you refer to as spiritual stress, um, the feeling, people feeling the need to be punished. Well, um, without getting into theology, um, um, I spent a lot of time um, uh, in the 
uh, the psychiatric ward at Cabrini, and and there was you know people that that had severe mental uh, issues, emotional issues, and and there was a feeling, um, you know, I'm not good enough, or uh, you know. Uh, I'm not loved, um, and and the the need, uh, you know, uh, to either uh, inflict pain upon themselves or others, but but just this whole feeling that um, I deserve this disaster, I deserve this house fire because I'm a bad person, or you know I'm responsible for this tornado, or I'm responsible for this plane crash. And and of course we know that that's that is extremely harmful thinking, um, and not true. Um, so, you know, it's it's a flawed theology, but I I respect it. I understand it uh, because we still have a goodly number of of uh, folks, even some of your listeners, who might believe that uh, um, uh, illness was divine punishment yes. um, but I have a more benevolent um, and, and hospitable um, uh, image of God in my mind a, a God of love and and not of rage do we need to be attentive in any way to the basic needs of the first responders oh we sure do because they are talk about accumulated trauma each day is another trauma for them and they have to have their a lot of um well uh, on the job training that helps them know what to do know their part of it but as a first responder a policeman a fireman um uh, an emergency um emt it just uh you know we need to be gentle with our our uh, public servants and and uh, you know it, it's very heartening uh, uh, to see after disasters that oftentimes people bring food to the firehouse or to the police station um, just these gestures of hospitality and of caring uh, for our professionals because you know, we only see the headlines of of uh, the bad ones, and and they're traumatic too. Um, uh, but but you know, we really really need to take care of our public servants because there's there's an extraordinary that's an extraordinary vocation um, helping other people. You also point out that it's helpful to create a new physical space to remember what was lost and some of the ways of comfort in the first month. Uh, and again, I'm not, I won't read, I can read them completely. Ask questions about one's life before and after the disaster. It's a comfort to tell one's story, but only when one is ready to tell it. Um, survivors may be recovering and depressed, know when to refer to a professional. Comfort takes patience and inspiration. Caring isn't a competition. Kindness starts with an expanded heart. Make a will or help a loved one make a will. Grief is irrational. Comfort is dedicated. Loss accumulates. So all the, again, it's written with uh, deep faith, great wisdom, and, and sensitivity, and, and love. 
And in fact, when we begin to talk about uh, the first year and beyond, um, 9-11 is, you point out, is still too raw, even for you. It is. And as I say, I moved from lower Manhattan to uh, um, Arlington, Virginia, and that, uh, it, it, you know, I can't go to the museum in, in uh, um, southern Manhattan, uh, you know, because, as I say, it's, um, you know, it's, it's very valuable because the story, the history needs to be preserved and shared. Uh, but there's a part of it of not re-traumatizing someone. Um, I, I very... Um, studiously avoid uh, videos of September 11th and also, uh, um, you know, uh, uh, this the death of, of, of uh, George Floyd was incredibly traumatizing. Uh, um, and, and uh, you know, I was several thousand miles away, but, you know, if, if you were... Um, if you have a heart and soul and a per- person of compassion, we we all were affected by this, and um, uh, we're still seeing the consequences of that day. And um, you write, to a spouse or parent, their loved one is still very much here. There may still be many complex emotions a year later in dealing with such a profound loss. Give people permission to share and to be a good listener. There can be a comfort in being unafraid to have a conversation about the deceased. It even can be considered healthy and normal. Do not discount the importance of being there and comforting. During these anniversaries, remember feelings are not only enhanced, but hiding behind a made-up face and a well-brushed hairdo and some of that other things you write about during the the first year and beyond are that uh, it's a time when many uncomfortable decisions have to be made uh, that fatalities were once described in numbers uh, and today it is widely understood that fatalities should be represented by their names uh, real names ensure that they are remembered and uh um, not only do we need to know how to comfort, but also where we will need to be comforted. And you believe that in the uh, future, there's going to be um, greater need for comforters. And, and rather than ask you question, another question that I have to break in, uh, in less than a minute now, you recommend spiritual care providers who know how to comfort those who have been traumatized by catastrophic uh, events. And so, um, again, so so sensitively, and and you write that uh, ways to comfort the first year, uh, help assemble a visual document of the disaster event, attend the memorial on the first anniversary, visit the cemetery with the family, help plan and... and, uh, Implement an anniversary ritual for those who still may be none. Help with financial needs. Is it time yet to replace a treasured pet? Go for a walk with a survivor. Plant a tree. Help a child remember and be prepared to answer questions. We'll be right back. 